You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in the field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting edge research. On this episode of The Chain, we bring you a live panel discussion recorded at PEGS Boston Virtual Summit on May 13th. The panel is moderated by Dr. Erica Ullman-Sapphire of La Jolla Institute for Immunology. Expert panelists from academia and government assess the COVID-19 antibody and vaccine development thus far, including what did and did not go well during the pandemic. They also look towards the future and the role mRNA vaccines may play for diseases like influenza, what we learned about the United States' ability to manufacture during search production, and what infrastructure is still needed to fight both the current crisis and future outbreaks. Thank you. Welcome. So we'll introduce who the different panelists are, and then we'll launch into some discussion. So I am a professor of structural biology and immunology at La Jolla Institute for Immunology. I'm a protein engineer, and we've been spending the pandemic launching and building the Coronavirus Immunotherapeutic Consortium, where we are comparing 300 different antibody therapeutics side-by-side and standardized platforms to find combinations that are potent enough and um, effective enough that we can launch them for low- and middle-income countries and to build a, a publicly available database of information about antibody activities against spike, where we find resistance to mutations and variants of concern, which ones are the most effective and why, and which in vitro assays best correlate with in vivo success. And we're also engineering better forms of spike to use as vaccines ourselves. So our first panelist is Lakshmi, Dr. Lakshmi Krishnan. Lakshmi, can you tell us what your focus is? Yeah, thank you, Erica, and it's a pleasure to be on this panel. And thank you to PEGS for inviting me here. So my name is Lakshmi Krishnan. I'm the current Acting Vice President for Life Sciences of the National Research Council of Canada. Uh, National Research Council, those that are maybe not that familiar, is uh, pretty much like NIH intramural. So we have research labs uh, focusing on human health therapeutics. This is what I lead. So uh, since the pandemic, we've been quite active in many different sectors. Uh, We are the largest R&D organization in Canada that works on biologics, antibody therapeutics, as well as vaccines. So that meant has meant that we've been busy on both fronts, uh, helping a number of um, Canadian companies move their vaccine products into clinical trials. So we have a number of those candidates, and these are uh, virus-like particles, protein candidates uh, that we have worked with, um, as well as we've uh, put together a large biomanufacturing center, literally has built that within 12 months of standing it up from ground zero. So that's uh, quite a bit of work. And on the antibody front, we've been working with a number of groups, uh, including ourselves, uh, on uh, developing antibody therapeutics. And very pretty much, as Erica said, uh, working in a consortium, looking at serology and antibody um, serology in patients, convalescent, as well as with different uh, variants. Um, and lastly, but not the least, we uh, have uh, kind of pivoted our CHO cell expression platform uh, to be a rapid expression platform for production of uh, antigens. And we're really focusing on compressing the timeline to be able to produce various antigens uh, uh, in this platform within five weeks from the time, say, a new new variant uh, emerges on. And so that's been quite interesting. And we've been advancing that antigen as a reference standard, not only for diagnostics, but also now moving towards uh, using that for vaccines. Excellent. Our next panelist is Dr. Peter Hotez. 
Hi. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me on the panel. So I'm uh, I'm an academic. I'm a professor and dean of tropical medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. I'm also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development with Mary Elena Batazzi. And, and at the Texas Children's Center, we develop uh, recombinant protein vaccines for mostly for parasitic diseases. And that's what I've been doing since I was an MD PhD student a hundred years ago, developing recombinant protein vaccines for parasitic infections such as hookworm on uh, schistosomiasis and, and now uh, Chagas disease. And about 10 years ago, we adopted a coronavirus vaccine program because it was similarly orphaned. Nobody cared about coronavirus vaccines or not very much. And we started develop, we got, we worked with the New York Blood Center, Shiba Jiang and Lan Yingdu, uh, and others. They had some pretty interesting recombinant protein uh, receptor binding domain antigens that protected really well in laboratory uh, animal challenge models with, with the Galveston National Lab. So we'd been making SARS and MERS vaccines. And then when COVID-19 sequence hit, we said we can do this. And we quickly scaled up, uh, made a prototype recombinant re protein receptor binding domain in yeast, um, very high expression, and wound up doing technology transfer to biological E in Hyderabad as a recombinant protein vaccine on, on alum together with CPG. And it looks really good in non-human primates, and it's just finished phase two clinical trials. Um, the Indian regulators have now authorized it to move into phase three, and and we're hoping this can come in as a low cost. Uh, they think a dollar fifty a dose uh, receptor binding domain recombinant protein vaccine, and and scaling it up now accordingly. They say one billion doses they can make. That's the nice thing about a recombinant protein vaccine in yeast. If it's a high yield producing strain, you can make lots of it and, and quickly. So hopefully it'll have a role. Thanks. And our last panelist, Dr. Peter Marks. So hi, I'm Peter Marks. I'm director of Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research at FDA. I'm a hematologist oncologist by training and uh, uh, protein chemistry is not unfamiliar to me from doing my PhD, but um, more, most recently we've been most uh, involved in the uh, regulatory uh, approvals of COVID-19 vaccines and also uh, other uh, products, both cellular therapies and uh, convalescent plasma immune globulins uh, for uh, COVID-19. So uh, the pandemic has uh, kept us uh, at a full employment status um, at the Food and Drug Administration uh, in this area. I'll stop there. So I'm struck in this panel at the uh, the variety of expertise in different pathogens, different viruses, different platforms, different ways of delivering immune protection. And so, you know, that's an interesting topic. We've had a lot of excitement this year about some new platforms, and, but there's multiple things moving forward in parallel. Can you talk a little bit about what has gone well, what needs more focus, and whether we've become too focused on one strategy? Well, well, I'll say, I'll say, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Peter. Okay, well, no, what I was going to say is, you know, when this pandemic started, if you were to ask me well, uh, what was the technology I was most optimistic about, I would have said um, the, um, well, of course, I had this, would have to say ours, but, but. Beyond that, I would have said the vesicular stomatitis virus Ebola vaccine. Um, and the reason was it was an amazing vaccine, right? And and it was a lifesaver. I mean, Merck and Company, it was, I think it was Public Health Canada that that 
first developed it in Winnipeg and then uh, was licensed to Merck. Merck and company did an extraordinary job. It was over 90% protective it, and it had that ability to, I think, save Democratic Republic of Congo from a widening Ebola epidemic and may have stabilized uh, the African continent. I'm sure Peter Marks and 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 Lakshmi uh, were heavily involved in, in the, that vaccine. I would have said, yeah, that's going to be the one um, for COVID nineteen. And of course, it didn't work out. It it for whatever reason it it didn't advance. And I would have also said, yeah, the mRNA vaccines. We've had mRNA vaccines, DNA vaccines for a long time. Uh, yeah, it's interesting technology. I'd love to see an advance, but I'm not going to bet on that one. And of course, I was completely wrong. And the mRNA technology is been extraordinary. And I got the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and I'm extremely grateful. So I think for me, the message is when a new pathogen hits, we need as diverse array of technologies as we can possibly muster because you never know what's going to work. And I think that's going to be the challenge. Now, everybody, it's, it's like a little kid's soccer game. The ball goes off in one direction. Everyone heads towards it. Everyone's talking about mRNA vaccines. And yeah, and, and the technology will improve, right? It'll get easier to scale. We'll figure out how to keep it stable, maybe even at room temperature. But we have to figure out a way to keep all, all of the technologies in play. And that's going to be the challenge, creating an ecosystem where we can tap into different technologies quickly, which we did partly through what was called Operation Warp Speed, another U.S. program. But I would say balance it out a bit more with some older school technologies and building that capacity in, in low and middle income countries. So we're not so dependent on the multinationals like we were this time around. Yeah. So Erica, I kind of resonate that from our perspective, you know, we entered this pandemic where Canada did not have any biomanufacturing capacity. And so we were, you know, essentially in the queue for procuring vaccines at the time for, and which, you know, thankfully has worked out and we are, you know, a little bit slowed out of the gate, but still catching up. And I'm very thankful, like Peter, that we got the Pfizer working and we all got jabs of that. But our approach has been really focusing on the platform. So our, uh, the way we're looking at it and saying is that how can we develop diversify our research around platforms. And uh, we still think there's a lot of opportunity with the protein expression platforms. So we've been focusing quite a bit on this protein expression platform, whether it's a mammalian cell line based or baculovirus based or other expression systems. And um, as well as in the on the mRNA front, we still feel there's a lot to do in terms of you know, improving the platform around the formulation. So uh, while we definitely had some successes with both the Pfizer and Moderna, there's still a lot to be optimized around the nanoparticle formulation and so on. So that's another. And then the third area in terms of platforms, which we feel that we, uh, where we are focusing a lot is adjuvants, because at least again, it's told us that even though we have got some very promising adjuvants, uh, having GMP quality adjuvants ready and available for multiple different vaccines will still be a challenge for globally reaching everybody. So we are now kind of going back to look at some of our you know adjuvants which were very promising and we're entering phase one trials and really see where can we uh, advance them to you know stockpile in terms some ways GMP ad quality adjuvants available for the next time this happens where we are not going to be all dependent on you know the one uh, ASO3 or uh, other adjuvants from GSK but we might have another panel of adjuvants to rely on. And for me, the real message is that, that uh, just like what Peter said, the VSB demonstrated, it didn't work for uh, the spike. 
The next time around, maybe it'll be a different platform it'll work. So we will need to have, you know, a basket of these tools and reagents available and expertise that we keep uh, growing because we never know which one will need to be pivoted towards that. And that's type of the approach we have uh, focused on in Canada. Yeah, Peter? I would. This is Peter. I would just add that I think, you know, we, we, we're constantly saying, what are we going to learn coming out of this pandemic? Well, if there's anything, I think we, 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 we always have these very forward looking proposals often that are, uh, uh, that are brought to us. I think if there's a proposal that we need to be thinking about, it's really a pathogen mapping exercise uh, where we map pathogens to the most likely platform that will most effectively um, get them. Uh, yeah, because I, I think uh, Peter Hotez and I are twins separated at birth, because I would have said exactly what he said, um, and it's exactly how I pegged um, the uh, order of how these platforms might have worked and, and look at where it came out. But for the next time, we might save time if we have some better idea, um, because it's, it's clear that having a diverse array of platforms, some pathogens are going to be better matched with some of those platforms. And to the extent that we can understand that, and have less trial and error, uh, it might be a good thing moving forward. Peter, how do you do that? Do we, do we now have a rule of thumb that for coronaviruses, we use mRNA and filoviruses, we use RBSV, or is it not as simple as that? I mean, what are you going to use for a paramyxovirus? What, I, I, what's the I, next? I think you, I, I think you start using, I, I'm just going to say from my perspective, we have a tool that's very helpful as we have, we have artificial intelligence that you can feed in a lot of big data to and start looking at, at an, a large array of vaccines and efficacies and start to try to, to, to see if machine learning can help you learn something to start. I think, I think the other, I agree with that. I think the other piece though is, you know, one of the reasons why the, the, COVID, the COVID-19 vaccine program was so successful is by the time we got the COVID-19 sequence, we knew that the spike protein was going to be a major target of the virus. And that didn't occur by accident. That occurred because NAID had been funding that research, including our research, for at least a decade, probably two decades. And I remember being on a panel with um, Susan Weiss, who's a, a professor at Penn, and she's been funded, she was funded more than two decades ago by NAID to work on mouse hepatitis virus, which is a coronavirus. And at the time, many people were skeptical. Why was NAID funding mouse hepatitis virus? Because even though it's a coronavirus, it's not a human pathogen. Well, you know, so much of what we learned about coronaviruses was because of that. So the, I think the other lesson is, you know, keeping that funding stream going from NAID from, for basic virology research and basic research. Yeah, that's, that's, that, has to be done in parallel as well. Let's talk about recombinant protein vaccines have been remarkably successful for a number of pathogens or, you know, virus-like particles, which are, you know, assembled protein particles, protein cages. How do you tackle that kind of problem for an array of viruses, including this one? Well, for us, what we did was since, you know, we were sort of a, um, that's pretty much what we do. I mean, all of all of the vaccines for us that have gone to clinical trials are recombinant protein vaccines, and most of those are through microbial fermentation, either E. coli or, or yeast. We do some mammalian cell and baculovirus, but in terms of clinical trial material, it's mostly yeast and, and E. coli, and it worked for us really well for SARS-1. 
Um, the one problem with it at the time was it wasn't very innovative. It was sort of boring. And it's true, it is a bit boring, but it, but it worked really well. And it was hard convincing the funders to roll the dice with that one when you had all the exciting, I uh, sometimes call them shiny new toys, um, mRNA and adenovirus vectored vaccines. Um, and that was hard because I had, a, you know, we got some funding from NIAID, but I remember spending the first few months of the, um, the pandemic raising money um, from private sources, which we did. That was a hard time because I was also throwing darts at, at, at the White House for the disinformation campaign. That was a, that was a pretty dark period in my life, but um, but it got through it. And so I think the message is, um, you know, I think getting to your, the question you asked Peter Marks, which was a good one, practically speaking, how do you keep lots of different technologies in, in play? And one suggestion that's come out, I'd be curious to hear what the others think about this, is to create uh, CMC hubs uh, CMC. all over the world, so, you know, uh, uh, chemical manufacturing control in sort of the upstream component of vaccine development and create these hubs where you have experts that know how to do this. So let's say, for instance, you create an mRNA hub where there's a lot of expertise, maybe even not even doing it through industry, doing it through the nonprofit mechanism as a research institute where people know how to rapidly sort of know how to do that transition, not only the basic R&D, but know how to do some scale-up process development at some reasonable um, industrial scale, not full-on you know, manufacturing, and have that capacity as a, a warm base of, of scientists that are, that are trained in different technologies that could be readily mobilized and tapped, and then you can plug and play depending on the pathogen. You know, at the thought of how to display Spike better, we put in BioArchive this week what we think is a, the most stable version of Spike yet. And it came from a place of just being frustrated that we couldn't make enough recombinant Spike to feed the consortium. And we we're just sick to death of unstable proteins springing apart to post-fusion and separating into monomer. And so we, we took out one of the detrimental prolines in the set of six. We added a flexible linker and we added in a core disulfide in S2. And we call it VFLIP, V for Roman numeral five, FL, flexible linker, IP, interprotomer. And it'll stay trimeric without a trimerization domain for a month at room temperature and you can freeze thaw and lyophilize it. So we're hoping that this will um, expand production and stability, and it could be used as a recombinant protein or as a sequence to display through any other mechanism. We're really happy with it. We're getting extraordinary yields, and the structural biology is simple and beautiful. And you're getting good neutralizing, good neutralizing antibodies? Yeah, twofold better than Excellent. S2P, yeah. I, th I think the other lesson is from this one is the spike protein turns out not to be a very complicated target. You, you, you develop a lot of virus neutralizing antibody and some type of T-cell response, and you'll have a vaccine. Yeah. Um, and that's why you could apply this array of technologies uh, uh, to it. I think the hard part is going to be now managing the, the, the variants and, and how we how we can rapidly yeah. respond to that. Yeah. So, so to Peter's, you know, kind of uh, thought there, what, you know, uh, uh, it kind of maybe complementary to what Peter is in microbial uh, fermentation, our strength was in mammalian. So what we did focus in early days was really seeing and, you know, exploiting a mammalian cell line platforms because we already had very deep expertise in, you know, HEK293 cell lines, the Cho cell line, the Vero cell line. So our very first question we asked is which of these cell lines is going to be the best to 
rapidly produce spike. And what we actually found very early on is that in the uh, Cho expression platform, we could actually a hundredfold greater expression of spike compared to any of the other cell line platforms. And so from there, we've what we've been you know uh, approaching is a kind of a, a pool approach because you know if you want to make a stable clone and you express it, it's going to take a long time. But from a pool approach, we can really compress the production to about four to five weeks and get you know very high yields that we can use. And of course, we, we're still using trimerization domains, so but we can use different trimerization domains. Some of them work much more better or more stable than others. Um, so I think that type of approach for us really helped us. And going back to one of the other questions on the virus-like particles, that's been another approach as well we've been working on with some uh, groups uh, like VBI vaccines because they'd already had used the VLP approach to take um, vaccines for CMV, for example, into clinic and even for glioblastoma. So we could then pivot that on the spike. And again, that's a mammalian expression platform, but they have got a unique way of making an EVLP that retains our structure. And the neat thing about it is as well is that we can make it multivalent. So with the variants now, the approach we're looking at is can we introduce multivalently within, you know, within the same VLP? So, so I think th that approach has really helped. And the last comment that Peter made on, you know, what about a, you know, CMC kind of hubs, uh, that's definitely in our biomanufacturing strategy that we are very seriously looking in Canada now because we've earned, uh, learned the hard way that not having or, you know, de-invested from biomanufacturing in Canada uh, over the last 20 years has really, you know, we have had to pay a price. And so now we are really looking at a model of, you know, publicly funded hubs uh, across the country. And the very first one we've actually managed to stand up is in our NRC uh, campus in Montreal, where we actually hit ground early last year and the building is you know, now ready and we're in the commissioning process. Uh, and that will focus on mammalian cell production. And then we look at other hubs uh, in, in, uh, with the company Medicago, we're looking at a plant expression hub and then we look at other... That's a great idea. By, by the way, if you should listen to my House of Commons, Canada House of Commons testimony uh, last week, um, or was it last week or Monday? I had so many Zoom calls. Um, I said exactly that. So if you need anybody to back you up, um, just replay that as in my opening Thank statement you. to the Canada that. House I of Commons. You that, I, did, I, didn't, I wasn't even aware you were doing that. So in Vulcan yeah. mind mill there, that was great. I'd say one other thing that's really important is, you know, one of the other lessons learned from this pandemic is the contribution of, of Peter's organization, CBER, um, in terms of the importance of regulatory science. And, and the problem is we don't have enough CBERS uh, in the world. And that turned out to be a real fail. So when, you know, when Russia was pushing hard on Sputnik V and, and the Sinovac Chinese vaccine, you know, bypassing what are sometimes called stringent regulatory authorities, that created a global problem. We're still dealing with the global fallout from all of that. And so how we can uh, build capacity for regulatory science and reproduce at some level what CBER has done over the, over many decades, um, the Center for Biologics Evaluation Research. We need that capacity. And, you know, for instance, I, you know, there's nothing, I, I doubt there's anything close to that on the African continent or the Middle East. Indian regulatory authority is good. It's, it's, it's certainly gotten a lot better in part because I think of some mentorship by FDA EMA is strong, but, you know, in Latin America, it's highly heterogeneous. How do we build that regulatory capacity and mentoring? And so, so much of vaccine development is the human capital. You know, when 
I, you know, when I've been asked by a lot of journalists about the patent waivers, you know, I kind of said, yeah, yeah, the patents have some role, but that's not going to make you a vaccine. It's the human capital that knows how to do scale up and do it under quality control, quality assurance, and the regulatory science is so vital. And that, that confuses people. They don't quite understand the unique uh, problems associated with biologics and vaccines. Peter, maybe you can comment. And then maybe you can walk us through how that process works in peacetime and in pandemic time, what the differences are when people come to you with different processes, different platforms, and how you interpret when the initial data necessarily comes from animal models, how you read likely human efficacy from that, the human data that you get, and how you evaluate rare events and decide what is and is not a genuine safety signal. That's so, so this is this is uh, an art, not a science, always. Um, and I mean, we had this obviously. You 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 do this in the context um, of everything, all of the available information that you possibly have. So there are various things, right? So you have initial efficacy, uh, which you're often, um, you know, you're often trying to um, infer. Um, uh, the, the lucky thing with vaccines, right, is that we we at least have often. Um, a, a hook because we understand, you know, if you, if you have antibody responses, that's, that's a nice thing. Um, not all vaccines, not all infectious diseases, are you lucky enough to have the antibody response be the primary uh, protective effect? And we still even don't know what the, uh, for, 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 for coronavirus, what the, what the contribution relatively is, although I think we're beginning to increasingly put stock in uh, titers of antibody titers that come up. Um, so, so, so you, you, you use what you have um, for, for safety signals. I mean, it's very, it, it, launching a new vaccine is not for the faint of heart uh, because we, you know, uh, you know, the, these safety signals, you know, some of them turn out to be nothing. Um, and some of them turn out to be like major issues. And I think a great example of that is look at the, uh, Look at the AstraZeneca and Janssen vaccines with this very strange, um, uh, it, it, what, what we think might be um, uh, immune response, right? Probably HLA-driven, uh, possibly even, uh, to, to the vaccines with giving you this mimicking of heparin-associated thrombocytopenia um, with rare blood clots uh, in, in very strange places. Very odd thing, right? Um, and you have to be able to catch those Believe it or not, for every one of those that we we find, there are a whole bunch of others uh, that we have to sort through um, in in terms of strange side effects. So there's there is this very careful um, work that has to be done where you can't ignore everything that comes. You can't ignore anything that comes along because you never know what's going to turn into something. Um, so that that's been a it's been a challenge, and it will continue to be as we launch. Uh, more vaccines. One thing. One thing I would say, uh, getting back to protein-based vaccines, we. The reason why we're excited to see protein-based vaccines come along is there are people who you will never get an mRNA vaccine into. You will almost never get uh, a, a DNA uh, non-replicating viral vector into, especially one that has some of the issues that we have now. But because protein-based vaccines are very familiar to people, they will. They will potentially take those. Um, and feel more comfortable that it's not going to mess up their genetic material, even though we know, I mean, I can, I can talk till I'm blue at the face that, that the mRNA vaccines and that the, uh, 
and that these uh, non-replicating adenos don't do that. But there is something about a protein-based vaccine that makes people very comfortable. I don't know. That's well, it's comfortable because you know recombinant hepatitis B vaccine has been around for four decades, so it's people are used. They know their kids get yes, it. And yes, so, that's exactly right. I know because so, I was actually <laughs> right. I was in one of those trials. I think the other point also is, um, uh, you know, we see what happens when you don't have that careful program of regulatory science or pharmacovigilance. I mean, look at the Sputnik V vaccine. It's being used all over the world in countries that have probably very modest pharmacovigilance. It's likely causing the same issues because it's an adenovirus vectored vaccine as the as the AstraZeneca vaccine or the J&J vaccine, but we'll never know because it's being given to millions and millions of people and you know in every country around without any kind of pharmacovigilance system in place. And that in itself is a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that we've learned about this is that is that having real efficacy data and understanding the efficacy data is really important here, uh, especially as we have the variants starting to circulate around because we now have seen what can happen when you have suboptimal vaccine effectiveness, even with a well-vaccinated population, uh, as you can still have these variants come around and, and create problems. So um, there is something about having careful data, um, uh, uh, carefully collected data. Um, and I, and I, do, I, I, I appreciate Peter's uh, kind words because I, I do think that, that we do, the, the, as regulators, um, we, we need more of a compact that we're going to not have um, kind of rogue uh, vaccine nationalism lead to kind of vaccines that are under-tested uh, proliferating very quickly. And, and the other complementary piece, I think, as well as, you know, all of the uh, analytical assays uh, and the CMC required around the release of vaccines, I think this pandemic has also taught us that we have too few places where that rigor is being followed and being, uh, you know, monitored. And so, uh, and you need that, and you need good, you know, uh, CROs that are able to do that at an arm's length. You need regulators who are able to be very comfortable with the new uh, analytical assays that will come up with these new technologies uh, and provide the guidance. So I think that piece we cannot underestimate into how we have to ensure that we build the robustness around uh, the uh, batch batch consistency and, and assays and development of different types of assays as we introduce new types of platforms. What are we monitoring in that product is going to become extremely important. How do you build that capacity and how do you train that when you're up against limited resources and impatience and limited time? How do you do that? That's a very good question, Erica. And this is a uh, you know, real-time challenge we've faced. And two things we did early on is that we, we capitalized on our public sector side. So we actually built some, uh, some reference reagents very early in the pandemic. So, for example, NRC actually produced uh, uh, the spike protein reference reagents that we gave freely to anybody. But these were very well-characterized reference reagents that people could access and use. And then our academic labs actually set up some high-throughput 
you know, antibody serology assays that they made a consortium that they could, you know, and, and I'm sure this was true in many other countries as well. And then in parallel, we also were trying to enable some uh, contract research organizations to then take these reference reagents and create those assays and standardized uh, reference material into validated and qualified assays that would be needed. So I think it was very much a collaborative approach to make sure every sector is working together. And, and a lot of it was done, you know, with the push from the public sector to enable that because there has to be incentivization of the private sector to be able to go into these areas because uh, if they develop a battery of assays that are very needed right now, but a year later, not so much, and that's not a business investment they're going to make. So I think there's a lot of a role that the public sector needs to be playing along with the regulatory groups to make sure that we enable that ecosystem uh, in both a private public sector model, in my opinion. That's critical, isn't it? Because a really good vaccine you sell once and that's give you lifelong protection. Nobody make, goes into vaccines to make money. They go into vaccines to save lives, right? How do we how do we make sure that companies that make vaccines and keep us alive stay in business? Um, so there's a question in the chat from an audience member, at least in the initial papers from J&J on their vaccine. Uh, I noticed that the secretion peptide used on the spike protein was from TPA. If this is incompletely cleaved, could the blood clotting issues be a consequence of inadvertent antibody responses directed against TPA versus the TPA leader? Yeah, interesting, interesting thought. I, I, I can't comment on the protein chemistry of of, of, of that one. Uh, what I, what I can say is that um, it's the 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 blood clotting issue. The the way this is happening is is probably mimicking some some antigen is 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 mimicking something that is leading to activation of platelet factor four. Um, uh, 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 and uh, or activated activating the platelet seems um, uh, just from a hematologist perspective that doesn't seem like the right mechanism to get there. Um, uh, uh, but uh, and and the, the issue also would be that since the finding with Janssen is identical to the finding with uh, AstraZeneca, and it's probably, as, as I think Dr. Hotez already mentioned, um, uh, uh, possibly an ads, a, 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 a generalized adenoviral phenomena that I, I, doubt it's, I doubt it's related to the specific protein construct and more to the ad, um, the underlying ad that's there. Do you think it's more the delivery of spike by adeno, or is it the adenovirus vector itself? Because we've never given it to gazillions of people like before. It, it, it's really it, it, it's 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 hard to know, but I think it might have to be the combination. Um, it, it, it obviously the interesting thing is the 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 Janssen and the AstraZeneca vaccines are subtly different constructs, right? There there there's there's non-stabilized versus stabilized. The the hard thing is that we don't have the kind of surveillance on the several hundred thousand people who've received an ad 26 uh, in Africa that you'd like to be able to know that whether this was, it goes back to your point about Sputnik. Um, mm -hmm. it, this may have been happening and we just don't know it. Um, so um, I think we're going to have to, to go back and, 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 and look at this more closely. And there, there are a number of groups that are doing so. It's a really great question though. 
And then I guess another question is going to be, does this, will this throw cold water on future adenovirus vectored vaccines and how will we, how will we manage that? I think it's going to be very, very problematic also. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other thing going for the fact that this could be an ad specific phenomenon is the folks in the gene therapy world have known that ads can, you can get these, you can get these antibody formations, um, with with using uh, and obviously they're using much and, higher and doses anti anti PF4 antibody and, yeah very very rarely yes mm -hmm. this kind mm -hmm. of same type of thing very rarely right right so maybe it's just a it's a rare event in a lot of people we're also exploring with the uh, Indian vaccine manufacturers a prime boost approach also uh, first dose um, either AstraZeneca or something else and then recombinant protein the only problem it gets it's not easy to operationalize something like that when you're immunizing large populations, but it may be more a more robust mechanism for handling the variants as well. And also, I think if, you know, as many of us now feel that there might be, uh, there's an annual vaccination campaign for uh, SARS, maybe the ad via vectors are going to pose an issue because how many times can you repeatedly do it? And I think the same also, we don't know about the mRNA vaccines is, you know, are we going to be okay with repeated vaccination? And that's, again, is an area I think we're going to need a lot of uh, pharmacovigilance to uh, to monitor and to, you know, uh, study post-vaccination immunity uh, in that cohort, because these are new vaccines that we've been now using. I mean, I think another message is, you know, the amount of vaccine science, a lot of vac amount of vaccinology we're learning Mm -hmm. is going to dwarf, you know, the last few decades. I mean, it's just going to be this massive flow of, you know, how, how are we handling all the bioinformatics around this? And it, um, I don't know the, how well it's being organized globally, but this, from our Lancet Commission on COVID-19, that was one of our, on the vaccine subgroup, that was a recommendation. I mean, when you're immunizing simultaneously this many, literally billions of people with so many different technologies, the capacity to for learning and if you can capture the data the big data uh, would be unprecedented and I, and I hope we we don't lose that opportunity i mean the the vaccinomics the immunomics could could in theory just be extraordinary yeah, i would i would just echo that 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 is that would be a tremendous loss if we don't uh <laughs> I mean, the compar just just the comparative data that we're going to be able to get from this episode, right? I mean, of of from because of all the different platforms that have been used, it's going to be amazing. What do we need to put in place to make sure that the tremendous, exhausting effort of the last year and a half is not wasted? That we learn something from this. <laughs> I hope we've learned something from this. Um, I, I, I mean, I think we've we've learned the importance of preparedness all around. Um, I think we've also learned the importance of manufacturing technologies and flexible manufacturing technologies. Because, frankly, although we are, we're, it, it seems like we're doing well, but we could be doing better, right? We 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 could be making more vaccine that could cover more of the world with a less expensive uh, vaccine. Um, uh, if we actually had manufacturing technologies that was more advanced. Um, and, and, you know, when time is of the essence here, when you have the kinds of 
uh, circulating variants, it would be nice to get there sooner rather than later. So I would say that although obviously you want to have the scientific work up front, we need more science up front to make the best vaccines, we don't want to forget about the need to have really scalable manufacturing technologies that will let us really go to town once we have those great vaccines. So having that surge capacity in place so that you have it and you can respond. That's right. Yeah, no, I think the question about, you know, uh, I think what this has taught us is that also that there's going to be need to have a lot more of that collaboration and network to reach where we need to go. And I think, as um, Peter said, we have to look at all of those three pieces, right? I mean, in terms of uh, vaccine science, but also right up to scale up and manufacturability. And I think we need networks and all of that to constantly be talking to each other. And this has, I think, been one of the uh, really advantages that has happened with this pandemic is that, you know, reaching out globally and working globally has really come to the forefront. And I think that is going to be needed in you know throughout the next time we have this. Hopefully we're not establishing new networks, but these networks are going to be ready to run. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I was Nice to see all of the panelists and hear about all of the, what you have been doing and the different things you've been considering and the things you've been mobilizing forward here and abroad. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next episode for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.